Welcome to Uncontained, episode 90. I'm your host, Aaron Static Render. On the show today, Justin Beam is back for another Halloween, yes. And I figured, what better person to have on the show than somebody with his hands and fingers in as many pies of the horror movie industry as he has. He's written for magazines, you name it, a horror magazine, Fangoria, Monsters of Filmland, and uh, he also writes for Kiss Magazine, yes, the band Kiss, who it's Halloween every day for, every time they step on stage, they put on that makeup and uh, let that tongue wag, yeah, he writes for them, plus he is a producer as well, uh, mainly of, we'll get into this in the episode, but mainly of more documentaries on the horror industry. You'll hear him on commentary for movies such as the Halloween franchise, for the new one he's on is Silent Night, Deadly Night, and uh, you'll even see him as an actor as well. He doesn't really consider himself much of an actor, but... He does dabble, that's right. He had a bit part in Sharknado. He's in a new werewolf movie called Betsy, and uh, he's here on Uncontained. And I'd like to thank everybody who's listening for continuing to support the show. Now, finally, there is a new way that you can help support Uncontained, and that is by wearing uncontained yes i have t-shirts hoodies even coffee cups for you and you can get those all at t public just go to tpublic.com and search uncontained in the search bar i'll also be posting links on social media so uh, you can easily find it that'd be awesome uh, to actually go out and see somebody wearing an uncontained t-shirt. I'd have to thank them personally for supporting the show. Anyways, back to today's guest, Justin Beam. I can't thank him enough for taking the time out of his schedule, especially during Halloween season in October, late September, and to throw into the craziness that he has going on now, he talked to me less in a week before he was going to get married. So talk about a chaotic time. Talk about a love for horror. Listen in to this episode of Uncontained with the one, the only, Justin Beam. How are you doing today, Justin? Wonderful, wonderful. Tis the season. I'm, I'm absolutely at home in the middle of October, and it's it's exciting to be back on with you. I really enjoyed our last conversation a lot. The show, I love the format here. And I love your Thank approach you. to how these discussions flow. So I'm, I'm really grateful that you're having me back. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you coming back, especially with the October and Halloween season being a pretty busy time for you. Because for people who either haven't heard the first show, which they should go back and listen to because uh, you were a great guest on the first one. And for those of those who haven't listened to the show... Justin is involved a lot with uh, the horror industry from writing for horror magazines to doing commentary on some horror movies. This guy, he's busy during Halloween. That's the point I'm trying to get across. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what have you been up to, Justin? You're right about October being crazy. And this year in particular, I mean, well, it's always nuts in a lot of ways with, with projects and stuff. But this year too, like this weekend, it's we're recording this, the 
the sort of toward the beginning, second week of October, and I'm getting married this weekend as well. And so in wow. the midst of all of it, yeah, and there's no better month to do it. And we're doing it in upstate New York where in this old reportedly haunted mansion called the Bachelor Inn in the midst of the colorful upstate New York fall. And I couldn't think of a, of a more apropos place for this amazing thing to happen. So in addition to all the normal madness, I, I have that going too. And it's an exciting time. But yeah. so that's really been first and foremost, getting keeping all those plates spinning. And it's a, a, a relief and also just a big old pool of anxiety right now as we're heading into the final days. We're, we're flying out in the wee hours in a couple days and then we'll be off to the races. But like project wise, it's kind of been all over the place. Okay. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know how you wanted to handle touching on the various things, but I, I, I have had quite a bit going on. All right. Well, first of all, I want to say congratulations on uh, the upcoming wedding. And well, thank you. Uh, I do remember last uh, year as we were talking about uh, what's been happening with you, you were you had gotten an accident. This is the lady that you met like after the accident and just uh, found out that, you know, you were like perfect for each other. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was wonderful. And this fragile bit of cosmic uh, happenstance uh, that she and I had been friends for a number of years, but just sort of casual friends online. And, and after the accident occurred, then we started, it gave us, it, it really opened the door to us having the time to be in touch regularly and to foster something that might've otherwise been hard to do from a distance. Cause she was on the East coast and I'm in the Midwest and as I'm sitting here day after day, I mean, I was out for six months after the accident and the only real time outside the house I had outside of errands was going to my physical therapy and rehab and spinal procedures and stuff like that. So that's where the bulk of my activity was. It was such a joy to have her and it just blossomed so fast and and then in the fall, I mean that that happened the beginning of the year, and then in the yeah. by the time fall rolled around, uh, we she moved in, and actually summer she moved in, and then last October, uh, I proposed to her, and since then we've just been trying to put this thing together, and that's awesome, man. Yeah, it's That's been awesome. wonderful. I'm, I'm really lucky. Yeah, I remember getting into a whole conversation about finding lightness in the dark. And yeah. that kind of sparked a whole thing, um, a, kind of a whole theme to the show. But yeah. uh, so as we talk about what uh, is keeping you busy right now, first of all, let's start out with what is like, say, Halloween specific that is keeping you busy since this is a Halloween show coming out on Halloween day. So, Oh, beautiful. Perfect. Happy Halloween, everybody. <laughs> yes. Happy Halloween. So, uh, what is it Halloween specific that is, uh, keeping you busy today? Well, you know, it, it's, it, it's interesting the way things come around full circle. And by this point, hopefully people have already had the chance to enjoy this. I really hope so. But Halloween has been back in theaters all month. John Carpenter's 1978 classic, uh, the sort of 
inset point for the whole Michael Myers saga. And I am handling all of the, I'm handling all the media and press and promotion for the film and trying to spread the word. It's, it's in, in many, many theaters nationwide. We're overseas as well. And hopefully by this point, we've, we've been seeing just a tremendous reaction. So what's interesting about that is that back in 2012, I was a vice president for the production company behind the Halloween films, okay. which is called Trancus and Trancus international films. And at that time there, there hadn't been a Halloween, a new Halloween movie since 2009. And it had been rumored that there was to be a new one coming out in the fall of 2012. That didn't end up happening. That film got sidetracked and sidetracked and sidetracked. And so what I thought is, well, these fans have been so patient for so long and the appetite is still there in a huge way. I thought, what if we put the original back in theaters? And so yeah. I spearheaded getting that movie back in front of audiences nationwide and overseas in the UK, I found a, a theatrical distribution partner in screen vision and we got it in the, the greatest number of theaters the film has ever seen the widest number. And it was a, just a tremendous success. Uh, it was such a thrilling time. I also did, we wanted to do some extra sort of added bonus content. And so I, I wrote and directed a documentary short that ran before it in all the theaters Really called you can't, yeah, called you can't kill the boogeyman. And so that was playing <laughs> all around the place too. And that was really about the cultural presence of the boogeyman around the world. And then sort of juxtaposing that against the, the character of Michael Myers, the shape in the Halloween saga and how different that's handled here where everywhere else on the planet, he's a, the boogeyman is this, this entity that they use to threaten children to do good. And here yeah. he's on merchandise and people are getting him tattooed on their, on their <laughs> arms. Yeah. So that's a very different thing. But so anyway, that was really, I mean, it was such a, such an exciting time in so many ways. And, my time with Trankus was transformative for me and it opened a lot of doors and I learned a lot and I'm, I'm very grateful uh, for all that I had a chance to experience while I was with them. But that 2012 re-release was really probably like one of my proudest things that I've ever done, uh, getting that back out there and having it be such uh, I mean, it's, people embraced it in a way that, when I was first reaching out to these theatrical distributors trying to find someone to play ball, a lot of them were saying, this movie is from 1978. Today's audiences don't give a shit. They don't, they're not going to get this. It's not going to do what you may think it does. It's a cult yeah. film. But luckily, Screen Vision got it. Like They latched on from point A, and they saw what, what, where the potential was. And what's cool about that is even though I left the company within a year from that point, the film remained back in theater, back in theaters every October since 2012. So it's been in regular seasonal rotation every year since then, which is That's awesome. A, I did yeah. help out on the, they called me in. They also put Halloween four and five back in theaters the following year. And I helped with that a little bit. And I've done some other films like Silent Night, Deadly Night. I think that was 2013 on that one and um, some others. But now 
the company who's currently handling it is is called Spectacast, and they have had it for a couple of years now. And the version of film, the film that's out in theaters right now, is completely remastered in HD. It has uh, all new sound mix. The picture has been supervised and approved by Dean Cundy, the cinematographer on the film. So it's a really, it's a sharp presentation of the movie nice. in a way that many people probably haven't seen before. And really, and then there's an, an intro bit from John Carpenter that's playing before it. So it's a special event. And I'm, I'm just thrilled that it's still in theaters. And then to come back into the fold again, now, now on the Spectacast side of things, and to be a part of it, it just it, it, it feels right, and it feels like a homecoming in a way, especially now that there's a new Halloween film that's going to be coming out next year, and this is a nice way to get people warmed up for that as well, but just yeah. to let people know this is back in theaters right now, and hopefully tonight you might be seeing it, or I know it's playing in many theaters into November as well, so you may still have opportunity to check it out. What I'd recommend doing to see the locations is go to spectacast.com, that's S-P-E, C-T-I-C-A-S-T dot com and there's a list of theaters there or you can just search for Spectacast Halloween and you'll you'll find all the theaters listed there. Alright, cool. But, we'll have to do that. Yeah. Uh, I'll make sure that's in the uh, show notes. And, yeah, that'll be great. Uh, Thank you. Do you think that releasing a film from 1979 would work in many other genres? I can think of maybe one or two where it would work in, but re-releasing a film, do you think it's kind of special to like horror movie and horror movie fans that they'd be interested in going back and seeing something that is 30, 40 years old? Yeah, I think that the re concept of a revival screening is is really it's nothing new but it they tend to happen more in big cities so with classic films that are sort of universally accepted as like gone with the wind or i saw jaws in theaters a couple years ago um the, the really big names outside of horror it ha usually it's like wizard of oz or something that is commonly found on like Turner classic movies or something. So that's not new, but I think that it's still rare. Bo yeah. The boutique booking, the one-off booking is, is definitely becoming more common now, but it's, it's still a rarity ultimately. And I think that horror is, is a uniquely positioned genre because the fan base is so dedicated to it. I don't think that there's a lot of like, I'm not going to say that there. I mean that that the shelf life is any different, but the fan base is very different for like romantic comedies than there are than for horror. Where obviously there's a huge base of people who love to see them, but the dedication to everyone involved with the craft is different. Yeah. So I don't know that there are that many people going to see like whatever the latest like romantic comedy is because they love the cinematographer on it, for example. Yeah. Nobody's like going to go see the notebook 30 years from now. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, like I saw that movie to see James Garner. I don't know that many people, I, I don't know. Cause I, I, that's a great example of one, but like I talking about Halloween and I say, Hey, one of the things that we are very proud of with this re-release is that Dean Cundy, the cinematographer supervised the transfer well, that in the horror world, that's 
legitimate. That's a big deal. Yeah. Because people collect every iteration of a film. They're, it's a collector's universe within the genre. And sci-fi is very similar, too, where the fans want to hold on to every version that they can get, and they want it to be as pure as it can be. And so when you're putting it back in the hands of the people who were the original creators, that's part of why, like, the new Halloween film that is in production right now, that's going to be coming out next year, it has such wheels because John Carpenter's on board as executive producer, and Jamie Lee Curtis is now announced as being involved with it. So wow. there's, a, you know, there's a lot of street cred, I guess you could say, that comes along with the right people being involved with this stuff. And horror fans have really found most of what they're passionate about on video because while horror is a reliable thing theatrically, it's, it's always a successful genre in theaters. But the movies, a lot, a lot of times, maybe they come, they, they do pretty well the first couple weekends and they tend to taper pretty quickly. But they find a lot, a lot of these have found their their legacy on home video. And as a result of that, many people haven't ever had a chance to see like the original Nightmare on Elm Street in theaters or Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Evil Dead or any of these other, I mean, those are like tentpole titles, but even the smaller titles like uh, Sleepaway Camp, for example, or any number of other movies, people would clamor to get a chance to see in on the big screen just because they've never had that experience. Yeah, me mentioning Evil Dead, I was uh, I definitely would go see Army of Darkness in the theaters. That's like one of the movies yeah. that got me into really understanding. Like, because when I was when I first started watching horror movies, a lot of them didn't actually scare me. So I was like, "What's the point of this?" And then. <laughs> uh, then it took Bruce Campbell and Army of Darkness to open up my eyes to it. Like, oh, there's a whole different, you know, aspect to these with a little bit of the humor involved in it. And then and then the coolness of the creatures themselves. So that right. I would right. definitely love to see on the big screen. Yeah, absolutely. It's not. And really, I think that very few movies are truly scary. So. The term horror or scary movie, it's kind of misleading in a way because it's more about, and, and I'm sure that I discussed this when we talked previously, that the fans are as interested in what's going on on screen as they are what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. And so you want to, you want to be in awe of what's happening. You want to see great craftsmanship and artistry presented. It's more than just the story. It's about the mechanics involved with pulling it off. And that's a whole thing that makes genre cinema, like horror and sci-fi in particular, or uh, so endlessly fascinating to this ever-growing fan base is just that there, there's, there. I don't know of any other genre that is so thoroughly explored, whether it's in print in magazines, and there's so many different magazines dedicated to horror and monster movies, to books, I mean, countless websites. And then you go into the, the realm of the fan base that has been pouring over these things in chat rooms and message boards since the Internet was in its infancy, and digging into every minute aspect of every one of these. I mean, touching on the Halloween franchise, I know that the mask has changed in every film pretty much, and people are never tired of 
breaking down the elements of what makes the mask in part one work but not part five because the neck is too long and the nose is too big and then in <laughs> halloween h2o there were five different masks that were used and one of them was cg and that looked like shit but then there was one that worked really well that they hardly ever used throughout like they never stopped talking about this stuff because it never gets old yeah. and i think that's really unique so it, it is when i say it's a uniquely positioned genre for getting back into theaters i think that's because the appetite for the fans is never satisfied, which is a wonderful thing. They always, we always want more of the things that we love. And, yes. and, and it's, it's a great time where we are seeing more theaters open to putting something like Halloween 1978. Doesn't seem like an obvious roll of the dice, but they understand now through the numbers, the power of the people illustrating that they absolutely are willing to go revisit these things in the theater. Yeah, and one of the cool things, too, that I kind of – it dawned on me as you were talking there and uh, describing on how, like, dissecting the masks in Halloween and, uh, you know, it's kind of – there's two different aspects to, like – horror movies in my mind as far as like as far as the props and the creatures and stuff like that and they're both equally awesome in their own way there's the ones where it's like pulled off so it looks real like oh my god this is actually happening you see the gruesome like beating heart and stuff like that and then you see the mm -hmm. ones where you can almost still see the strings pulling the creature apart and when <laughs> it's like left in there almost intentionally as like a stylistic <laughs> thing it just yeah. makes that it's like kind of gives that aspect of humor to it again and like i don't know correct me if i'm wrong but i think both of those are awesome in their own right I, I am in absolute agreement, and I think that there is there's a market for everything these days, but the openness of the horror fan in general is another really unique aspect. And when I say openness, I mean they aren't demanding, in, for the most part, of big-budget special effects, flawless CGI, those things they it's a it's a base of people who just love to be entertained and who love to laugh at something as much as they love to be stirred by something or moved <laughs> or shocked or whatever it might be it, it's a, it's about the roller coaster that they're going to go on and they're as open to riding on something silly as on something that's legitimately terrifying and i think that this is one of the other ways that horror is unique is that it exists on every level imaginable budget wise and production level wise so you do have a film that's shot on video sitting on your shelf in the video rental store right next to the latest universal sequel to whatever it might be like and and the same person will walk in and be absolutely open to renting both of those in most cases <laughs> and then there's companies like trauma entertainment I don't, uh, they are a staple of splatter sort of punk rock cinema. Toxic Avenger, I think, is probably the most well-known series that they've put out. But they, they also have like the Return to Newcomb High series, and they continue making all these. And, and they're, they're very low-budget movies by most people's standards. But they have this fan base that's dedicated to them that would give anything for them in their loyalty and it's based on 
the schlockiness of their films, the fact that you can see the seam in the monster's suit or the mask moves in one scene or whatever it might be. I mean, that's part of the appeal of this, and that's absolutely as legitimate as going to see something like Lars von Trier's Antichrist and being stirred and disturbed to your core by the uber-realistic, higher-budgeted effects of this psychodrama of these two people in a cabin deconstructing each other. Yes. I mean, y you know, there, there is ab there's worth in both of these and horror fans are open to both. And I love campy movies. I watch more of what most people would say are bad movies than good ones. <laughs> and I, I really treasure the bad stuff. In fact, Kendra, my fiance, well, by now Halloween, my wife is, she and I love to dig into just finding the, the most left field stuff we can and almost invariably inevitably it's going to be a, a blast whether it's super great or whether it's super bad we're going to we're going to love it we're going to have fun with it yes awesome awesome so um speaking of bringing back some old school movies uh that we were talking about uh halloween 1978 coming back into theaters they're doing commentary for a classic horror film uh children of the corn how did that come about that's one yeah the original children of the corn 1984 that's uh, based on stephen king's and um the it's from a company out of the uk called arrow video who have really been exploding over the last couple years most of the production work that i've done historically has been for shout factory and scream factory and Anchor Bay, those are the ones that I've historically done the most for, where I do like producing of supplementary materials, commentaries, documentaries, things like that. This one, I, it's the first time I've done anything with, with Arrow, and it was actually John Sullivan, who runs the Children of the Corn website, who is a self-professed Children of the Corn historian he's another Iowa guy here and okay. he reached out to me and asked he said that Arrow had reached out to him asking if he wanted to to do some material for this blu-ray and in particular a commentary track and he reached out and said hey do you want to be a part of this with me I would love to have you on board so I was like absolutely so it's it's me and John talking shop and and sharing information about the film over the running time and that actually just came out at the beginning of October, that landed. So it's it's available now, and it's on video. You can get it at Amazon or wherever else. Okay. Videos cool. are sold. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I always enjoy watching the commentary and the behind the scene footage. It doesn't matter if it's a horror movie or a comedy movie. I like sure. uh, I like seeing what's going on in the background on the set. Um, all the mistakes that all the actors and everybody made and, you know, and just getting that cool thing that you can share about that movie with somebody that you're like, Oh, they start talking about it. And oh, you know what happened in this movie and why yeah. that must, that was off a little bit that, that water cooler moment. I don't know. And just knowing it for myself as well. It's, I don't know. Maybe I'm kind of a nerd like that, but it's, I enjoy it. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, I think the social aspect of it is a huge element of these films that it, of course they're fun to watch whenever, but there's a real community thing around horror, and that begins when you're a kid 
and you have those weekend sleepovers where you go and you, we would rent armloads of videos and just challenge ourselves to stay up as late as we can, get through as many of these as we can, and find the craziest movies that we could rent. It's almost like a rite of passage, and horror is a big part of that. But it's always a communal thing. It's with your buddies, and I don't think that really changes. People love to share this with each other, and that's what gave rise to the horror convention circuit, which is now bigger than ever in just about every state, and I would imagine at this point, where horror fans get together to talk shop to oftentimes there's film festival elements to those events to peruse a bunch of vendors selling everything from t-shirts and posters to action figures and custom art on to having the celebrities from the films themselves show up the directors and actors that made all these films signing autographs and doing panels where they recount their stories of the making of these movies there's a whole culture around this that is born out of that community spirit you're talking about, where they say, hey, you, you know, you you like Bruce Campbell, but have you seen Bubba Hotep? Or <laughs> did you know that he film. was in, even that he was in a made-for-TV Herbie movie back in the 80s? Like, you got to check that out. You know, we love to lead each other to the fountain, in a sense. And I think that's one of the most magical aspects of this entertainment and the fan base around it. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So I was looking at your Facebook page, Justin, and I came across a post that uh, you had recently, and it was actually more of a question. And I'm interested to get your, your take on this. Do you think one film can harm another? What, what is your take on that? Do you think a film can harm another film? I'm starting to write for a magazine out of Canada called Room Org, and they do these emails where they throw out whatever article they're looking for input on and they want you to pitch your side of it. They do like a versus column. And one of the questions they posed was can one film harm another? And there's been so much discussion around that, especially over the last decade or so with so many remakes coming out, Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, um, you name it. I mean, there's been so many of them that have been popping up. It's really divisive. I mean, it, it, you're, you're on one side of that spectrum or the other, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of gray area for people where they either are really outspoken in opposition to these things, saying, well, the remake of Friday the 13th soils the legacy of the films that came before it. Or they say, on the other side of it, say a remake can do wonders, like John Carpenter's The Thing is a remake of The Thing from Another World that is a classic in sci-fi circles, but ultimately Carpenter's film took it up a thousand notches into a, a, a real form of art that catapulted the genre into a whole other realm in terms of effects and things like that. So for me, much of that discussion is tied to, again, my time when I was working with Trankus International, dealing with the Halloween franchise, and the very polarizing Rob Zombie Halloween films were... Yes still fresh at that time when I was working with them. So I was going and doing conventions, whatever it might be on behalf of the company. And this always comes up. And a lot of people really take offense to the fact that Halloween was, you could say remade, even though it's, it's really more sort of a reimagining, a new interpretation yeah. of it. But a lot of people really, really, really feel strongly about these movies in particular. And I think part of that is because Halloween is held to a higher standard than a lot of 
a lot of horror franchises. Like Friday the 13th has a lot of fans, and it's so much fun, and it's great, and I adore it. But that and Nightmare on Elm Street, they, they fell into a lot of parody, a lot of silliness and comedy. And while, again, I love both franchises a lot, they're very different beasts than Halloween, which has always been pretty much played pretty straight. Yeah. And stuck to a core group of elements and the storytelling is very similar throughout the franchise and ultimately it tries to be respectful of itself and it hasn't been over merchandised with a bunch of silly things and where where Freddy Krueger became a centerfold in Fangoria magazine and all these other things and was cracking jokes <laughs> and has a bunch of children's plush toys and things I mean Michael Myers really hasn't had much of that happen so I think as a result of that and many other factors Halloween being revisited in a way really rubs people the wrong way. And so I have entered into I don't know how many conversations at film festivals or wherever it may be with people who are just adamant that Rob Zombie really did great harm to the Halloween universe with these movies. My And, and my stance on it is that no film, I, I, I really believe it, no film does harm to another. Even if you see something, even if you hate Rob Zombie's second Halloween, whatever it might be, whatever movie, you, the original movie that you love or movies in a franchise or whatever that, that you adore are always going to be there for you. And they're always going to be in the same form that you fell in love with them with, unless you're a Star yes. Wars fan, which is kind of fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the way George Lucas just takes those movies and then sort of yanks the ones you grew up with out of your hands and says, nope, you can't see that anymore is wild and rare. Yeah. Whereas you, you, you have someone like Ridley Scott who has toyed with Blade Runner, which is maybe my favorite film of all time. And yes, he's made like four different versions of it, but if you buy it, you're getting all four versions now. So he's never saying this one's no longer my favorite, so you can't have it anymore. He's still giving you all that he's got with that. Yeah, that that's a good way to look and do it. It's like suggesting that that every painter should either do exactly what came before. Like if there's a model in the middle of a room and you have eight painters around them, yeah. They're all looking at the same model, but everyone's canvas as you're circling the room is going to look different. And it, it's silly to me to expect anyone to do the same thing or for someone to walk in and think my vision here isn't valid. I'm going to walk away from the canvas and leave it blank. And that is the, the mindset with a lot of fans who get up in arms about this and declare blasphemy when someone decides to remake something or do a, a reboot, or if it's a sequel that doesn't have the same spirit as the original or the same approach, they're, they're really forgetting the fact that it's a completely different set of artists usually, or even if it is the same director, like with Chainsaw Massacre and Chainsaw Massacre 2, for example, both of them are made by Toby Hooper, who just recently passed away. And hear that. they couldn't be more different in their tone. The original Chainsaw is a stark, gritty, essentially almost like a reality film, early reality entertainment where you're just dropped into the madness of this situation and almost bloodless film that people remember being so gory and horrific and nightmarish. It's all, I mean, it really plays on so many emotions with the audience, but it's stark and it's visceral in that way without being gratuitous. 
kind of like Hitchcockian with an implied violence. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think when you leave something in the audience, I mean, to that point, when you leave something in the audience's mind, that can be very effective. Because our imagination is like when the lights are off, that room is full of monsters and who knows what. But when the lights are on, you know, it's just a refrigerator and a coffee machine. It makes sense to leave that in the hands of the audience in some scenarios. Definitely. I really do like your analogy about the uh, the model in the center of the room and the artists all around and how everybody is going to have a different rendering of that uh, model there. So everybody's going to have a different drawing. Even if you're seeing the same thing, it's going to be processed differently coming out. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the whole point. That's the whole point. When people are talking about um, like It, for example, Stephen King's It. There was a TV movie actually made by Tommy Lee Wallace, who's also from the Halloween universe. But he, Tommy Lee Wallace made the television movie that came out and starring uh, Tim Curry that's been revered for many years, you know, for decades yeah. now. But ultimately, it was a television movie, so they had to pull a lot of punches for it. They had to play it safe with a lot of content. And, and while it's, it's, it's certainly good, it's very much of its time. Now there's this new movie. It. Yes, I haven't seen that yet. I want to get to the theaters to see that soon. Oh, it's, it's, it's absolutely phenomenal. So this, this movie comes out, and it is a mega box office smash to the surprise of most and it's a fantastically handled presentation of the story with a lot of updated elements. It keeps a lot of the core things from the, the book, so it remains true to many of those pieces while tweaking a lot of the things to, to add a twist and to make it something fresh. So people, even people who have spent decades with the book can walk into the theater and have something new here while feeling that it's being handled with respect. But it's a great example of... It's not a remake. That book is the model in the center of the room. Yeah. What you what you have is two different sets of filmmakers and writers, artists on all sides of the production coming at it in different decades with different tools in their hands, so they're going to create something different. And there are some people who still say the remake, the remake. Well, it's not a remake. It's a new interpretation <laughs> of the source material. So how do you really compare those two? I don't think it's. I think it's doing both of them a disservice to say this A versus B because they're not relevant to each other outside of the fact that they're just based on the same thing. How many different plays have been done, have been staged on Othello? Very true. Very true. You're not going to go to a list of a thousand different productions and start comparing a wardrobe and the inflection of the lead and whatever it might be, trying <laughs> to break it down into. Like, you, there's yeah, no you can't do that. that. You can't do that. So, Let each one exist on its own terms, in its own turf. Take it as it is and allow it to be its own entity. Look, to answer your question on, do I think one film harms another? No, because I think every film is its own entity. Justin, you know how you can tell, we'll be able to tell which it is better in probably about 15 years. The way you can the way you can judge that is how many kids in the generation that are going to see it now versus the kids that saw the original it are scared to death of clowns because <laughs> it the the first one I won't call it the original because they're both original going yep. by the model in the room uh, but 
that movie alone, even though it was just a a made for TV movie, which you know, it it left such an imprint on kids where there's a whole generation that's scared of clowns. Like just like the people who saw a lot of people who saw arachnophobia when they were younger are scared to death of spiders to this day. Right. So. Right. We'll we'll have to wait and see how many people are scared to death of clowns in the next ge- in this generation coming up, and then we'll be able to say which it is better. And I think that the <laughs> that, that these movies, you're exactly right. And you know, Iraq, speaking to arachnophobia, those the parents of that generation may have been terrified by. Uh, I mean, who knows? Giant spider invasion, or any any uh, tarantula, or any other number of other spider films back in the '50s and '60s. So each generation has their own version of most of these things, and whatever impact they're going to have. But with it, it it's uh, these movies are the product of their time in many ways. And so that when the the first film came out, when it was, and first of all, it landed on TV, so it put it into homes. Yeah, that's an exposure to genre stuff that is still pretty rare. I mean, outside of cable, like Sci-Fi Channel, and these networks, obviously Netflix and some other entities are now much more open. I mean, this is really the golden age of television as well, where we're seeing things that would have been blacklisted when we were kids growing up. That are now just and whatever else it might be. There's, there's some amazing stuff coming out. But the fact that the original It was on television screens in homes during prime time, I think, is has a huge role in the impact that it had. The new one is just absolutely terrifying. As an adult, I'm sitting there in the theater, and I was terrified at points. And it's so well done and an absolute instant classic, which is a term that I don't know that I've ever applied to. I mean, certainly very few movies over time, but... By the time the film was even half over, when I was watching it the first time we went, I knew that I was seeing something that was going to have a real, real impact on the genre and, and have a real strong legacy. Okay, so you're throwing the title Instant Classic on it. Now I really have to get to it while it's in theaters and uh, check that out. So Absolutely. And you said the first time. How many times have you seen it? We've seen it twice so far. I would love to... I, Absolutely want to see it again before it leaves theaters, though. I think that the theatrical experience is, is an essential one for this one. It's- All right. Awesome. So I'm definitely going to have to check that out and uh, maybe even see if I can get to the 1978 Halloween. And uh, speaking of theatrical experiences, this is a little bit of a different type of theatrical experience. So you've been working with KISS and their new magazine. Do you have any new issues coming out here? Yeah, the first time that we dipped in on that was back when they had an album. I can't even remember how many years ago. It may have been around 2010 or 11 or so. They had an album called Monster that came out. And I was at the time, my, my mainstay that I was writing for was Fangoria magazine and the editor, Chris Alexander is is a huge kiss fan and was became friends with Gene. And that led to us getting the opportunity. It was me was Chris and me and a couple other guys got the chance to, to write the, the tour book and tie in magazine for the monster album and tour. 
And so that was the first magazine that we did. And it was actually on newsstands as well as available at their concerts and everything else, which was a real honor to be a part of that. And there's been a couple others since then. The next issue that we have coming out, and it's actually through a new publisher that I'm working with now called Phantasm Media. That's F-A-N-T-A-S-M Media, is a KISS poster magazine. If you remember back to the 80s and even the 90s, a lot of, especially heavy metal magazines, would put out magazines that were or issues that were primarily big fold-out posters. And yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, I mean, this dates back to Kiss in the 70s even, where a, a lot of the bands that you could get posters for in these magazines wouldn't normally have full-size display posters at your local music land or Sam Goody or whatever your <laughs> music store was. Just thinking of music land and Sam Goody makes me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, where else can I get a, a wasp poster or something like it's going to have to be from one of these metal magazines and these, these awesome poster issues. And that's what we're doing. So it's going to have some content in it as well. It's going to have posters from all eras or many eras of the band, as well as some articles. And I'm doing a piece in there on their album, Love Gun, because this is the 40th anniversary this year of that oh, album. Wow. So, for example, I'm doing a, a piece on that in it. But it's going to be a real, a real cool issue, and the band is super excited about it. They've been promoting it real heavily. And that lands in December. You can keep up with that at phantasmmedia.com, and I'll be posting about it on Facebook once the pre-orders open and all that as well. But it's a, it's just a real treat to get to work with this band that I've been such a fan of for all my life. That's awesome, man. And it's cool that they're doing some uh, vintage posters in there too. It's not just all new kiss posters, you know? Yeah, that's, that, that's correct. Yeah. It's going to have different lineups of the band in different eras. So it's not just the, the new stuff with the current lineup. It's, it's going to have, uh, you know, Ace and Peter will be in there as well. Awesome. Great. So not just Gene with a walker and uh, face makeup on. No, I'm, I'm kidding. You, you, well, you know, a lot of people joke about that, but I, with this band, maybe more than any other, because Kiss is, they're known and they understand it and they get it and they laugh at themselves about it, is how, how merchandised they are. These guys are all millionaires. They could sit back and just collect royalties and have a very healthy living. They're, they don't need more money. No. And they most certainly don't need to continue releasing albums. And beyond that, do not need to be touring because that's a, that's a hustle at any age. But these guys are in their late 60s, still touring every year, playing countless shows around the globe, still releasing albums, and when you go to see them live today, the show is almost identical to what you would have seen in like 1979. I mean, it is, they're, in, they're, they're phenomenal. And they put so much into what they do. They're, they, down to, and, and a lot of people do, they give them a rub about their merchandising, but like there's a big bootleg market for live show videos and that, that's been thriving forever since the band was born essentially. But these horrible like second, third, fourth, and worse generation VHS tapes that people are paying high dollar for through all these trading circles and whatever, well, KISS wanted to find a way to get these horrible-looking videos off the market 
so they went and they found the best core original elements for these concerts, and they released three different DVD sets. And these happened back in the two like earlier 2000s for different for three different eras of the band where they've tracked down the original elements as best they could on these concert videos yeah. cleaned them up cleaned up the audio and released them in these affordable box sets so people can like hey you want these concerts don't get ripped off by these fools in a parking lot charging at 60 bucks for a tape that looks and sounds like shit here have this it's as good as you're going to get it and they also put their film kiss meets the phantom of the park on the second one we remastered which has never looked better and <laughs> right on. so anyway oh, just man. Just all, all a testament to the fact that this band doesn't have to be doing what they are, and they're still kicking ass, and they still sound amazing. So I have a lot of admiration for them. That is cool, and very respectable, too, that they're out there just doing this because, well, they love doing it, and they don't need yeah. to do it anymore. So that that is really cool. And now, talking about something that you're up to now, getting back more in the Halloween theme of things, um, we've talked about you producing, we've talked about you being a media liaison, writing, and doing all sorts of uh, commentary for, say, Children of the Corn, Halloween movies, and all that, but here, you're actually in a movie, too, so you're just trying to conquer every aspect of, uh... <laughs> of the horror genre. I'm, I'm pretty sure you'll be taking over it soon. Um, but, <laughs> but you're in a werewolf movie. Uh, want to tell us a little bit about, about the movie that you wouldn't, I, I totally forgot the name of the movie. What is the name of it? Yeah, it's, it's called Betsy. And I, it's it, my adventures here have everything to do with me not being able to say no. And also me just, I, I, I just love being involved with as all sides of all of this stuff. And, and so there's no grand scheme at all outside of having fun and, inv and really trying to fully invest myself in as many elements of this world as I can in this entertainment stuff is with horror. I just, I, I love everyone involved with it and it's an honor to have had even a, a little tiny footprint in any of this. So the acting side, which I don't consider myself an actor by any means, it, it's really been born more out of people asking me to be a part of stuff, and so I say yeah. And this was a, this this film is called Betsy, and it just wrapped post production. It's from a director named Sean Burkett out of Ohio, and he is an indie guy who's been really prolific. I mean, releasing a, a great number of films over the last few years. And I just really have a lot of respect for his approach, not just to the filmmaking, but also to how he presents it to the audience, to how he markets it. Just he's, And he announced this film, Betsy, and it's a very different take on the werewolf subgenre. And I was really... Okay. Came, really really intrigued by what he was how he was coming at it and we ended up having conversations about the production and uh, he asked me if I would be involved with it in a role and I ended up playing one of the two cops in the movie so I, I you didn't get to play a werewolf I don't I get I get mauled by one which is probably more fun than being the werewolf watching these people who have to wear the werewolf makeup it looks like just abject misery so i'm pretty <laughs> grateful that i only had to be bloodied up for one night and get ripped up 
it, you know, it, I, I got off easy, I guess you could say. But if I was the monster, man, I'd be in that makeup chair for hours and hours and hours, and that would drive me nuts. Okay, I got you. I got you. So, well, that's that's cool, though. So you get to get mauled by a werewolf. Like, how much, uh, How you were talking about special effects and makeup and stuff like that. How much makeup mm-hmm. do you have to have on to get mauled by a werewolf? When I was, my buddy made the movie Sharknado, and when I was, and I have like a very, very brief moment in that movie, and they put prosthetics on my arm, like appliances, and they doused me in blood and sent me down to the beach to do my thing. That's, that's, and I was in a zombie movie called Collapse back around 2009, and made by uh, Mike Saunders and Jason Bollinger, two really good buddies of mine, also Iowa filmmakers, and... On, and well, you know, Dan also worked on that SWAT. Yeah. He, he, he worked on collapse. There's a lot of horror coming out of so, Iowa. And in that I was, they, oh, well, yeah. And a lot of that has to do with, there's a, yeah, this core group of guys like Mike and Jason have been the epicenter for a lot of horror activity and they've, they never stopped. They, there's another movie of theirs that I was in recently. I don't have any makeup or anything on, but I have a bit part in it's, um, it's called Demonica. It's about these kids trapped in a roller rink that gets possessed by demons. I mean, they just, especially, I mean, Mike is really the heart of prescribed films, which yeah. is the, the company behind it. And he is just a fountain of creative energy and these crazy fun ideas, but they never stop. And I really have so much respect for them in regards to that. So I've, I wore the zombie makeup in collapse. And, and so this was, was mostly just face. There was an appliance on my face and on my neck that they did. And then they had to put, they had to put makeup and like concealer and all this other stuff around it. And then they had to bloody me up for it and then shooting the attack. And they had to shoot it in a way to try to sell the appliance that was on me as well. So it it was pretty interesting. It's the most time I've spent on camera with effects on my face, I think so far. But it was just a treat to be a part of, and I really enjoyed it. And my another buddy of mine, Greg Adams, came out to just to visit set and to experience, to sort of take it all in. And, and he even had a blast on the sidelines watching <laughs> us put that together that night. So the whole experience is just so tremendously fun. Very cool, man. Very cool. So what advice would you have for somebody who is looking to take over the horror industry like you are? Uh, i really think that a lot of the walls that used to be up are down now between entertainers entertainment and the audience and that offers a lot of opportunity so like a show like yours for example where you can you have the opportunity to sit down and have conversations with people that are involved with whatever because i know you have such a diverse array of folks on here from music to you name it yeah i try to keep it all all entertainment based but uh right but it's from all walks i mean it really it's yeah absolutely so the fact that you can just reach out to people on any level whether it's through social media or imdb pro or whatever it might be and initiate conversation and maybe get them to be a part of something that you're a part of or get some writing advice from writers that you admire. It's so much easier now than it's ever been before. And outreach to 
websites that you enjoy if you want to start writing for a website. I would recommend, so on the writing tip, I would say put together some strong material, do some interviews, put some articles together, and send them to some editors as with, with a pitch email. Hey, here's who I am. Here's where my interests lie. Attached are a couple sample pieces from me, and I would love to do this, this, and this for you. I would encourage you to be familiar with the the entity you're submitting to. So <laughs> if you know that you love monster cinema, then writing to a website that caters to monster stuff is going to be easier than one that's just more of a pop culture website like The Nerdist, for example. Yeah. So really know, know your editors, know the people who, meaning know their product and what they like and what they present and tailor your pitch and whatever you're writing to that. On the producing side, that's a little bit tougher just because it's there there aren't as many people involved in that game um, and so I, I mean out on that side I guess maybe start cutting together maybe shooting your own documentary material for example so my latest production project that I just wrapped is on a blu-ray for silent night deadly night which is a 1984 revered horror classic that has been underserved historically here. And for that release, I mean, there's a whole story behind it, but for that, I, I putting on the producer's hat meant shooting a documentary and editing with my editor and, you know, assembling all the elements for that, which is, which is very uh, time consuming and, and detail oriented and, um, you really have to, I mean, that is a production in itself, plus then scheduling and arranging and appearing on ultimately, but putting together a commentary track and then assembling a bunch of other documentaries for it. And it's just, there's a lot that goes into it. So really ultimately, in terms of the work that I do, it's a lot of documentary work. So if you want to break into that, shoot your own documentaries, okay. get some out there, throw them up on YouTube, submit them to film festivals, get your name out there in that way and show people what you can do on your own. And you can use that as your calling card because saying you can do something is one thing, but handing somebody something tangible, proving that you can do it is another. Definitely. So that's, that's what I'd recommend on that front. And on filmmaking, just in general, or if you want to be in front of the camera or behind it, I'll guarantee you there's something being made in your vicinity. There's something near you that's being shot. And it's just a matter of keeping your eyes and ears open. If you, you know, explore at your local bookstore or video rental place, ask if there's any production groups in your area. There used to be several of those here in Iowa that were monthly meetings where Indie filmmakers just got together and talked shop and traded resources and helped each other out. I know these things are all around the country, yeah. and they're tremendously beneficial. So just get your hands dirty in as many sides of that as you can. And I can't really speak too much to the acting side of things because I don't really – I mean, I haven't traveled that route as most would. So I don't know outside of getting involved with local productions – doing some stage work probably maybe taking yeah. some acting classes and all of that but, i can only yeah. ask you to speak on what uh what you're familiar with man so that was some really good advice and 
you know, making a documentary, you can even go do that on your Android or iPhone and you can get some really good video out of that. So easier, easier than ever. Absolutely. uh, Okay. So what are you doing to promote yourself, Justin? I'm not really very good at that side of things. I announce things when they happen on Sunday and I, I, I really love to connect with people on social media. That for me, especially Facebook has been, has been such a wonderful experience from the beginning. And I've, I've developed so many wonderful friendships through that, but that's my main avenue for, I guess you'd say promoting, which okay. I, so I announce projects on there if I need input on something or feedback, or whatever. I love initiating conversation on there and getting people talking about stuff. But I, I mean, I really try to, instead of doing a lot of self-promotion, I like to, I guess, let my work, the things I've created, do that sort of speak for me. So I'd rather have, instead of saying a thousand times that I've done I don't know, that I produced the Sleepaway Camp Blu-ray. I just would love for people who see the Sleepaway Camp Blu-ray and watch all the stuff that I did on that to maybe enjoy it and to get something out of it. And if they recognize that it was me who did it, that's cool. But ultimately what matters is that they have the experience that's more enriching and that, that they treasure as a result of what I've created with these other all these other people who helped me out on these projects that, are so invaluable. So I'm not very good at self-promoting. I try to keep people up to speed on what I'm involved with, but I just ultimately try to let the work speak for me and let that be my face, I guess you could say. All right, man. That's great. Let the work speak for itself. You have an audience for writing, producing, and when you do a little bit of acting, what do you want that audience to take away from your performance? What do you want them to remember? I, with the producing side, so in the presentation of these films on Blu-ray or if it's the documentaries or commentary, I just would love for people to come away from that feeling enriched and knowing more about the things that they love because we take these things so personally we spend our lives toting these films around showing them to friends sharing them and revisiting them time and again to give people something new with something that they've already spent so much of their life with is a real honor and an opportunity and so if it can give them something deeper to connect with the material that's my goal on the producing side Okay. With the writing, and, and I, I honestly, with the writing, it's the same thing because I, I don't write reviews or anything like that. I've always been a feature writer, so it's very similar work where it's involving interviews and digging up the history on things and the nuts and bolts of the elements that created a film or went into whatever it might be. So it, it's very similar on both fronts. With like you mentioned acting, I mean, all I can say with that is I just hope that it that I don't ruin it. <laughs> I don't ruin a scene or or don't stand out too much and don't pull people out of the experience of being invested in the films. You you ultimately just want to serve the product and and serve the story and try to contribute to it in a way that, that helps it feel organic and not like it's a bunch of actors thrown on screen or a bunch of people that are reading lines. Just try to make it feel natural and serve the purpose that the film is intending aiming at. Great. So, 
basically have an honest performance and uh, portray what uh, is actually meant to be portrayed in the scene. Is that summing it up about right? Yeah, absolutely. You've been involved in the horror industry for a few years now, we'll just say. What is a highlight or two that you would uh, care to share with the uncontained audience? The greatest honor and the the thing that I feel was the biggest mountain to climb that was so long overdue was when I worked with the city council in the city of South Pasadena, California, to name October 31st John Carpenter Day. And the reason that occurred, and that was in 2013, the reason that occurred, maybe it was early 2014, gosh, it's been a while, but the the John shot had a number of his films in South Pasadena. It's a town that's used f- to play Midwestern any town, okay. kind of, because in, in California it's hard to find places that aren't full of palm trees and sand. And South <laughs> Pasadena really plays well as Illinois or whatever Midwestern state. And John, for that reason, along with many other filmmakers, but primarily him, has, has returned to it time and again, most notably in Halloween in the Halloween sequels, um, even Rob Zombie used it for his his first Halloween that he shot as the this perfect place. So the bottom line with that is that John has contributed a lot to not just the cinematic legacy of the town, but also to its commerce. I mean, there's a lot of people who show up to go visit the original Michael Myers house, which is still there, or the Blankenship house, which is still there, or uh, there's... There's a number of different recognizable landmarks from just in Halloween, for example, there in that town. And so I thought, and John is someone who's only recently come into having his career really celebrated. I mean, he's, he's had a rough go of it historically. Of course, he's created so many films that are considered classics now, but it took a long time for that to occur for audiences as a whole to really embrace him for the the master that he is and i just wanted to find a way to have some tribute paid to him in a very tangible way outside of just uh maybe like a film festival celebration or something so i i appealed to the city council there with the help of the head librarian at the library because i had hosted some events at the library there screenings and stuff like that okay and a convention and a convention as well and and we ended up, I mean, over the course of a few months, it took a lot of work and convincing and prodding and all that. But in the end, they, they made an official proclamation in their books and held a whole ceremony where John was in attendance, where they named October 31st John Carpenter Day for all time. And so that's forever yeah. in the city record. That and now you know cool. that. Yeah, so South Pasadena could be called Haddonfield, which is where the Halloween films take place. And to know that quote-unquote Haddonfield as, as named Halloween as John Carpenter Day, I think is it just tickles me to know that we got that done, that the silly little idea that I had to celebrate him in that way became this thing that will forever be an element in this city for him. So that was such an honor. And yeah. such, such I mean, this has all been uh, full of pinch-me moments where I'm so so humbled by the treasure trove of experiences that I've had. I've just been so fortunate. 
but that one really stands out as as one that I'll that I'm very very proud of. That is really cool. You, I guess, would be the only person I know that has created a holiday that is actually <laughs> recognized. Sure, somebody might be like, "Yeah, I created a French Toast Day" or something like that. Yeah, it's just the day of the week they eat French toast. But <laughs> um, I don't know why I went to that either. But uh, that's really cool that you got a holiday actually put on the books in in south pasadena that that is a highlight right there my friend and yeah yeah absolutely well john's a special guy and he deserves all the love and more that we can give him i mean he's he's given so much through his entertainment over the decades and his influence can never be overestimated awesome so i have one final question left for you justin uh, but before we get to that question, where can people find you and locate your projects online, your corner of the internet? Where will you be? Well, you can go to my website, which I, is justinbeam.com. And my last name is B-E-A-H-M.com. And that has links to like my Facebook page, which I'm active on, and Instagram and Twitter, I think, are linked from, linked from there. And as well as links to projects and a little bit of blogging, which I don't do a whole lot of. But that's really sort of the central point, I guess, if you want to try to track stuff down. Otherwise, just look me up on Facebook and shoot me a message if you want to talk shop or whatever. I'm totally open to that. All right, perfect. And are you still doing your podcast? Podcast took a back seat when I had some some issues with my computer <laughs> and that, that sort that sort of derailed it. And then since then, and there were some scheduling snafus too with some people, but, and so since then I have not gotten it back on track. I think I have maybe seven episodes that are out there right now. I do plan to return to it at some point in the near future, but just life has been so hectic, especially the last nine months or so. And with the wedding now and the Silent Night, Deadly Night, and this Halloween stuff and everything else. It's just been so crazy that I haven't had time to do anything recently on it. But I do plan to bring it back. All right. Awesome. I'll be looking forward to hearing some more interviews that you have coming yeah, thank up. Thank you. Because you have some pretty interesting guests on there. And I am looking forward to hear what you have in store. So it is time, Justin, for that uh, final question, the title question of the show today. Justin Beam, how do you live uncontained? I would say I do so by remaining true to myself and letting my passion and my instinct lead the way. So following my heart into things and seeing where they lead me, not getting too hung up on finding or sticking to a certain path in life, but letting letting the side roads lead me wherever they may and making the most of everything along the way as I do so. I would say that's it, just remaining true to myself and letting these things lead me to new experiences and being remaining open to them so that I can make the most of them when I arrive at that precipice of whatever it might be is what's led to me doing all the things that I have. 
That is awesome, man. Thank you for sharing. And once again, congratulations on getting married since, well, you Thank will you. be married by the time this comes out. And, <laughs> I appreciate it, yeah. And maybe we'll have to uh, talk again next Halloween. Or if you have some other project come out, feel free to come on the show. You're always welcome here on Uncontained. I have one final thing for you to do. Before we uh, get on out of here and you can go about your Halloween, it's sign off the show. I have all my guests do it. Justin Beam, will you do me the honor of signing off the show tonight? Okay. Well, I want to first, before I do that, I really want to thank you for having me on again. Of course. And it's it's always a treasure, a treat. I love our conversations and I love that you come at entertainment from the perspective you do and the openness that you do. Like I was saying earlier, that it's such a diverse and wonderful show. And Thank you, the sir. voices that you're giving platform to are, are all unique, incredibly and talented people. And I'm just honored to be among them. So thank you again for having me on the show. And so I would, uh, I guess I'd close out by simply saying, I'm Justin Beam and I live uncontained. And that does it for another episode of Uncontained. Thank you for listening, and thanks again to my guest, Justin Beam, for taking the time out of his busy schedule with all the normal Halloween um, events going on, plus the wedding that was less than a week away when he talked to me. And congratulations. I wish you guys nothing but the best. And once again, I'm excited to announce you can finally get uncontained merchandise at tpublic.com. I thank you all for the support. And if you can't get a t-shirt right now, don't sweat it. All I ask is that you share the word of the show. Just uh, pass it along to somebody who hasn't heard it and keep on listening. Thank you. And until next time, live uncontained.